First of all, thank you for this um, invitation to share a few Torah thoughts with you before Rosh Hashanah. There's a subject that's critical to understand, which um, is also central, I mean critical and central, to the whole theme of Rosh Hashanah and to the work that we have to do, what we actually have to put in. It's a little surprising, but essential. There are many ways to approach the subject, but perhaps let's do it this way. Let's try to also define <coughs> carefully and understand why this idea is central to women and her place in the general scheme of things, and particularly Rosh Hashanah time. You know, in the laws of Tshuva, which is really what our focus is right now, now up to Rosh Hashanah, 10 days of ten days of next month, in the laws of Tshuva, the Rambam uh, mentions something very interesting. Rambam says here, in the third peric, the third chapter of the laws of Tshuva, the Rambam goes through a list of things that are lethally dangerous. In other words, he lists here a number of categories, 13 or 14 categories, of things that are are various that are unique in their severity, uniquely uniquely punished. The way the Ramah puts it is that someone who transgresses one of these things <coughs> has no share in the world to come. His language is These are people who have no share in the world to come. Ella Nichrasim they are cut off and lost. They are judged on the greatness, the enormity of their evil, the chatosom and their sin, and they lost and cut off forever and ever and ever. Now, if those words aren't frightening, I don't know what is. You know, there are no words wasted in Torah ever. So if you want to say that somebody's cut off and lost spiritually, eternally, you know, you say they're lost. To say forever and ever and ever now, three words here. The Ram says, This is not poetry, you know, or, or sort of emphasis. That there's, a, there's a meaning in that. So there's a frightening idea that one who transgresses one of the following list, unlike other Averis, is lost forever. That, I mean, we're trying to get ourselves here into the mood. Not for Rosh Hashanah. This is as good a start as any. Um, other Averis in the Torah, it seems, that if a person does, so you're bleeding. These, it seems, are lethal. Right? Others, these, these are the things that you lose a share in the world to come. That means you cut off from your spiritual source. It means there's no spiritual life. If you would leave the world at that time without having corrected these things, then you don't exist, do not exist spiritually. Exactly what that means, and, and I'll be Kabbalah exactly what it means, and what, how it ties in with the fact that every Jew and every human being, really, every Jew has an eternal component that needs to be worked out. But at the simple level for now, it says quite clearly that one who transgresses these things is lost, um, is lost forever. The converse of these, the first 13 of this, the first 13 items on this list are better known to us from their obverse, from the converse, from the opposite. For example, l- listen to the list. What do you have to do to qualify for losing your spiritual existence? First of all, a category called minim. Right? Those who are very hard to translate, let's say in English maybe atheists, you have to know exactly what it means. Minim apikosin, two different kinds of atheistic approaches. Kofrim Batera, those who deny the Torah. Kofrim Tchesamesim, those who deny the resurrection. And he goes on to a lengthy list here of items. 
When he goes into the detail of the list, right, what, what are the items? First of all, there are five categories that fit into this definition of whatever you call it in English, atheist or deniers. Listen carefully to the... Listen, listen how they go. That there's no God, and the world has no manik, a uh, yeah, leader or director, right? Secondly, someone who says there is a transcendent divine being and he leads the world. But he's two or more. Breaks down the concept of Hashem's oneness. The first person breaks down the concept of Hashem's existence. The second is his oneness. Thirdly, Somebody says there is a master of the world and he is one, but he has a corporeal or physical manifestation, right? Not just body, even an image. That breaks down the total incorporeal transcendent nature of Hashem's existence. Fourth, he's not first, he's not the first cause. In other words, he exists and he's one and he has no body, but he's not the first cause of everything. There was primal, primordial material that existed always. Fifth, somebody who worships a star or a zodiac in, in order to be an intermediary between him and Hashem. And the Ramam goes on. That's the first five. Then he goes on to the next category and breaks them down. If you think about it, I'm sure your mind's already racing ahead. You will recognize these from a much more common source. And that much more common source is, and many people say it every day, uh, there must be a scenario here. No? Unless people hear that all by heart. There is a much more common source for this is, and uh, pro- probably some of you say it every day, after Shakris in every city you'll see printed the 13, yes, Ikrim, the 13 articles of faith, Animaimin. I believe with perfect faith. This, by the way, is almost certainly not the Rambam's words. He, did, he almost certainly was not the one who phrased this. It was someone contemporary, contemporary with the Rambam who phrased these um, beautiful and classic expressions of, of Imona, but they definitely follow very, very closely the Rambam's 13 principles. If you look in his commentary to the Mishnah, he goes through these 13 fundamental principles, and they've been very succinctly and classically phrased as the Ani Ma'amins, I believe. You can also find them in? Yigdal. Yigdal is 13 verses, each one corres- corresponding and bringing exactly one of these 13 things. And it's not difficult to see the connection, because here he says... I believe with a perfect faith, first of all, that there is a creator and that he's he's the conductor or leader of all the... that exists. What does it say here? Someone who breaks down the belief in Hashem's existence. Secondly, I believe with perfect faith, that he's single and there's no singleness like his. What's the second one? That he's two or more. Can you see it? Thirdly, that he is nobody, he has no body, and that no, no creatures who are constrained by bodies could grasp him in any way, and he has no image. Exactly the converse of the third. Somebody who says that Hashem has a body or image. I mean, it's absolutely clear. You don't need to be yes, a genius to see that they correspond exactly. Fourth, that Hashem, he's first and last. What's the fourth one here? Breaks down Hashem's... Firstness, status of being first. Fifth, that Hashem is He alone is fitting to be the one to whom we daven. Right, that means we serve. And here it says somebody who speaks to a star or um, astrological intermediary or any other. I mean, it's obvious that these are okay. So these things are no less than the thirteen articles of faith. The, the positive statement is the thirteen, right? 
the negative statement, the negative statement here is how you lose your connection to that which is fundamental. Let's understand this. It doesn't just mean the common conception, and there are opinions like this, that these, fir- these 13 fundamentals are simply philosophically fundamental. That means until you establish Hashem's existence, you really can't talk about commandments. That's why these come first. Until you've based, yes, you have a foundation of knowledge that Hashem exists, that is one, that is incorporeal, that is absolute, etc., the rest of the Torah d- doesn't begin. That makes sense. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not the Rambam's opinion. The Rambam's opinion is not that these things are more fundamental. That's not primary. What's primary in the Rambam's concept is that these things are the negatives. These are the positive statements of the things that if you don't do, you die. Are you with me? It's a completely different concept. The Rambam's concept here is that the Torah is built like a human body. And we know that. The body is built like the Torah. We know that. The world's built on the same pattern. In the human body, there are parts that are sensitive, that if you cut, they bleed. And there are parts that if you cut, you die. They're vital organs. There's some blood vessels and parts of the body that if you cut, you bleed. And there's some parts of the body, like your coronary arteries and, and certain nerves and blood vessels in the brain, if a small one of those gets cut, then that's it. Those are vital organs. The Torah has peripheral things, so to speak, and it has things that are the heart and the vital central organs. If you cut one of those, they're lethal. So far, so good. Are we together? So we have here a list of things that are uniquely severe. In, they're not the Ten Commandments. These are 13 unique things that, that result in a loss of one share in the world to come if they are transgressed. Yeah, that's what they are. Now, these things can be corrected. Right? These are lethal if you do them and don't correct them and die. But if a person does one of these and then does shiva and corrects it, they can be corrected. Right? This, this doesn't mean these are not amenable to shiva. The Rambam says everything can be corrected. Some things are more difficult, some things are easier. But everything is amenable with sincere desire to correct. They can be corrected. That's what the mitzvah of shiva is. So far, so good? Anyone out there? Yes. (laughs) These are very severe things, but if they corrected in time before a person dies, they can be corrected. Incidentally, it's a frightening list. I mean, the first 13 are corresponding here. The list goes on. You know, Balei Loshan Hora. People who speak Loshan Hora, no share in the world to come. Enough to make you burn your telephone, right? (laughs) I mean... This is not someone who once spoke Lashon The Rambam's language is Baalei Lashon That means a person whose essence is derived from speaking. It's not you occasionally said something. We all do that. But it means somebody who, that, that's his mode. Calling your friend a nickname. You give your friend, you give someone else a nickname other than his real name. The commentary say it means a derogatory nickname, not something that, that and they're usually very fitting. And you, the people's nicknames that stick to them are usually things that are intensely accurate and humiliating. <laughs> and that's why they stuck. The Ramam says even if you use such a nickname, you didn't coin it, but you use it. You lose your share in the world to come. Etc. Right? Again, these are not one-time things. These are etc. etc. These are, you know, if you want to prepare yourself for Rosh Hashanah, read through this list when you get home. But it'll calm you down for at least, at least until Rosh Hashanah. That, that's what's in this list. Now the next chapter, in the fourth parak, Ramam deals with a totally different issue. Here he deals with 24 things that are hard to correct. He's dealing with tshuva here. So these are the things that are, that are frighteningly dangerous and lethal, but that doesn't mean they can't be corrected. In the fourth parak, the Rambam deals with those things that are very difficult to correct. 24 categories of things that are, that are, are uni- unique in that they are not correctable, or extremely difficult, perhaps, to correct. Different issue, right? Those aren't necessarily the same as these. Those might be minor things, but they can't be corrected. Some of them are major, but they're not the same as these. For example, there's a category in the next... Among the 24 items that the Rambam mentions, 
are sins that are so small, so seemingly insignificant, or so relatively insignificant, that one doesn't correct them because you don't notice them. Right? That you don't take them seriously. You you dash by kevo. You you grind them under your heel. That means they things that 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 they minor slips. They 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 they're small. They're not they're not they're not murder. You know, and and, and brutality. They they they're small things relatively. So therefore, a person doesn't correct them because you're not sensitized to them. They're not dangerously lethal in the sense of the first list, but they're very hard to correct, etc., etc. So far, so good. And he lists 24 items or categories of things that are either massively bad that Hashem doesn't give you chance to correct, and and a Kodesh must speak beyado. Hashem sees to it that you die without being given a chance to correct for various reasons, and other categories of things. Now, what would be the most frightening ca- category that you can dream up? If I asked you after this discussion, right? And if you really want to be in abject terror. Something that you can't correct. And that's these 24 things. That can't be correct. Yes. So that's what he lists here. I mean, there's nothing totally unamenable. But these are the most difficult or almost impossible things to correct. Something that you're not aware of. Something that's in both lists. Then you're in real trouble. If, if you can find something... Right? We're just building the fear here, that's all. We just want to terrify ourselves, speechless. Right? In, the, in the first list are things that are lethally dangerous. In the second are things that you can't change. If there's one thing that's listed in both lists, that's a thing to stay away from. It's lethally dangerous, it takes away your spiritual existence, and it can't be corrected. That has to be awesomely fearsome. Right? Fearful. Correct? Fortunately, there are very few that appear in both lists. Those things that are enormously bad, that are lethal, they can be corrected. They're amenable to correction, maybe easily. Those things that can't be corrected, fortunately, are not the worst things there are. But there are a few that are in both lists. And two of them are as follows. Let's, let's look at it in the list of the, of the uh, things that one loses a share in the world to come. Yud. Machtiei harabim. People who lead the community astray. That we're building a concept here in Rosh Hashanah. Let's try and follow it together. Machtia Harabim, somebody who leads the community astray. Ketzad, and he goes into details. What does he lead them astray? In what matters? He said, it doesn't matter if it's big or small. It can either be a massive problem like idolatry, and he quotes classic causes and sources of idolatry among the Jewish people, who forced the Jewish people into idolatrous worship, which is a, the worst sin in the Torah. Even a small thing, like, uh, like, like, like just the annulment of, an, of a positive mitzvah. This person doesn't tell them to go and break massively damaging negative mitzvahs. He just leads the community, right? his minion, his community, his uh, small group of people that he, that he leads, this rabbi or teacher, whoever it is. And he tells them, you don't have to do this particular mitzvah, right? or we'll do it on a different day. We'll change the day to suit ourselves, and it comes out that they don't do mitzvah on that day. Even a minor thing. Not a thing that otherwise would put you into this category. Are we together? A thing that otherwise would be minor. But because it is directed against a community, because this person leads the community astray, I'm not going to mention names, but there are those groups within the camp, so to speak, yeah, that consider themselves to be within the Jewish camp, that, uh, that change things, right? that, 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 that pervert or distort or change. Most of the people who do that these days just don't know any better. It's not that they willfully evil people trying to destroy the Jewish community. On the contrary, most of those people are probably sincere people trying to, but they're misguided. They don't know. But it's a leader who is leading his people, right, his community astray, taking them away from Torah. That appears here. 
and frighteningly it appears in the second list as well. The Ram says like this, there are 24 things that hinder tshuva. Arbamehen avoin godl. Four of them are major sins. And one who transgresses one of these, Hashem does not allow him, does not give him the opportunity, to do tshuva, because of the enormity of what he did wrong. One, somebody who leads the community astray. Included in this sin is a mitzvah, who hinders the, the, the community from doing a mitzvah. Exactly the same thing. That is, that is awesome. That, that means that here you can identify the very first one in the list of the things that are almost impossible to change are ones that if you've done, you lose your share in the world to come for. Next one. Follows on immediately. Yudalov. Hapeiresh midarket sibur. Amazing. Somebody who separates himself from the community. Huh? Separates himself from the Jewish community. What does it mean to separate? That you lose your share in the world to come for that. That's spiritual death. What does it mean to separate yourself from the community? What does it mean? What's our picture of somebody who separates himself from, from the Jewish community to the extent <coughs> that he has no share in the world to come? What does it mean? Converts to a non-Jewish religion? Goes to live in non-Jewish society and takes on their ways and, and, and is, is, expunges all, all sense of his Jewishness and Jewish observance? That's not what the Raman says. The Raman says somebody who separates himself from a community who loses his share or her share in the world to come is like this. This person never did any sins. Never does any sins. That means he's an observant Jew. But he's separated from the community. Adas Israel means the community, like a minion. A minion is called an Adar. Separates himself from the community of the Jewish people. He doesn't do his mitzvahs together with his community. He does his mitzvahs. He just doesn't do them together. He doesn't enter the sorrow of the Jewish people when something happens to the community that they... And he doesn't fast in their fast days. The Ramah does not mean Yom Kippur and Tisha because he said this is an observant person. He means the fasts that the Jewish community take upon themselves when a trouble happens in a community, right? Where, where, where an emergency measure is made and we declare a fast day and people... Yeah, this person doesn't identify. He goes his own way and he keeps separate, right? has no share in the world to come. Now just let's get this picture clear. This is an individual who is a from Jew. That he just doesn't like the Jewish community. Why? Doesn't like him. Wants to do his own thing. So he goes and lives in a certain place, town, maybe they're Jews there, maybe they aren't. But not identified with the community. Is that so bad? Is that so bad? That, that's a lethal sin? That means you die for that? What's going on? And more frightening in the second list as well. Not only is it that bad, but you can't correct it. Listen to the next, listen to the next category. The second category. And there are five subcategories here that lock the path of tshuva. They block the path of tshuva in the front of the one who does these sins. Aleph, one. Haperish minatzibu. Separates himself from the community. Because when the community does tshuva, lo he won't be with them. When the community comes to its senses, they, they, they're motivated to go back and they improve themselves, they work on themselves, etc. He's not with them. He does not have the schus of the community, he's not part of that effort, and therefore not, and therefore, he's locked. Tshuva is very difficult, and it uh, will not be suggested in his mind, and he won't do it, etc., etc. He'll be lost. Now, what we have to understand is, we have here two things 
both obviously relating to community. The one is an attack on community. That means this takes the takes a community astray, even though it's minor. That means he causes them to transgress extremely minor things, but it's a community that's transgressing, being moved away from Torah and from what, from what Torah represents, what the Jewish people are. And secondly, a person who does not attack the community just separates himself from it. The first person attacks a community and moves them in the wrong direction. The second person says, let them be and let them be fine, but I move away. Even though he, even though he has not rejected and... and, and uh, Rejected mitzvahs or observance, but not part of the community. And the same two find expression in the next category that are the things that are extremely difficult to correct. Now, obviously, it's a very challenging thought. Why is this separation from community? Either false redefinition of community, away from what Jewish community really, mean, really is, or even leaving it intact, but separation out and moving into the desert, as it were, of in, in a communal sense. Why do these things have this level of enormity? And what does it have to do with Rosh Hashanah? Let's move through one or two other areas and see if we can pull them together. The Rambam says in his laws of Rosh Hashanah that we judged according to majority. That well known. Each individual, you judged according to the majority of your mitzvahs and avarice, it's quality as well as quantity. He says that, f- that your, your family, or at least your town, let's say, your unit in which you live, right, is judged majority. That means if, if 51%, 50.001%, is in the positive balance, and we all survive. We miss it by 1%, we all go. The Rambam says all the, the, the nation, the country is judged that way. Not talking about Jews, by the way. The Rambam is talking about the whole world. His language is called by Olam, all, all those who come to the world. That's got nothing to do with Jews. Rosh Hashanah is judgment for everybody. The living, the dead, Jews, non-Jews. He says the whole country is judged according to majority. And all the countries are judged together by majority. The whole world, in fact, Hebrew, it's a well-known expression, the Raman says you'd see yourself as if you poised on the knife edge, right, between, yes, between merit and, and demerit, and that the whole world's poised on the knife edge. And if you do one mitzvah, just one positive movement into the positive side, you sway the balance and the whole world is saved. Now, what we have to ask here is, what's, where's the fairness in that? If Hashem is the ultimately fair judge, he judges merits exactly as they deserve. So what's majority? Majority is a very, very loose... Majority is how you solve things when <laughs> you have to satisfy everybody, so you take a vote. But 49% of the people are unhappy. Is that justice? Hashem can't do better than that. Why is he... Again, you have, you have the problem. Why is he judging the world in Rosh Hashanah according to majorities? Hashem is the ultimate judge. Judge each individual, each individual according to what he needs and give him survival. G- give him or her... Life, if he deserves it. That person has to go because the majority goes? The whole world could disappear because of a majority? Sometimes Hashem sways the percentages, like it says by, by Stoim, had there been only 45 people or 30 or even 10 people, it could have a power because it's a community again, by the way. But, but, but what's this business of numbers? You know, the Gemara says that when the Jewish people, they are to go through a destruction... Then it says that when the mashkis is released, the destroyer is released among the Jewish people, Shuv Enoi he makes no discerning, no differentiation between those who deserve and those who don't. That's a very challenging problem as well. Many beginners in the, in the Kiruv world, dealing with the Holocaust especially, they ask this question. Hashem is a true judge. So, 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 the Jew, so what happens? That when the destroyer is released, he makes no distinction? He sweeps in his path those who deserve and those who don't? Why? Furthermore, not only is it a question of majorities, sometimes the majority 
That means masses of Jews are held accountable for one person. It's even more extreme. For example, it says when, when the Bnei Israel, when the Jewish people went into Israel originally, so the first battle of Yericho, as they conquered, they moved in to conquer the land. So in the second, in the subsequent battle, people died. It was a decimation of great numbers of Jews. And Hashem revealed to Yoshua that it was because people had looted in the first battle. It was supposed to be a holy enterprise, no looting, no personal gain. The Jewish people had broken that, and th- therefore great numbers of people suffered. And it turns out that one man took something, that's all. Achat, one man, one man. Source. One man took, one, took something, a few things, one thing. One person takes something, and a whole Jewish people are held accountable. Why? And the answer is painful and difficult, but it's absolutely essential, and it's, it's exactly against the consciousness of this generation. Exactly against it. And it's exactly what Rosh Hashanah is. And that is that the Jewish people are one organic body. And it's women who have to teach this. The Jewish people are one organic being. It's not a question of fairness because that, that person and not me. That person is me. The Jewish people are one organic entity. You know, if part of your body is bleeding, all the rest of you is in trouble. It's no good saying, oh, it's only my right hand. It's no problem. It's just my hand. I'm fine. You're not fine. If, you're, if your hand's bleeding badly enough, all of you is in trouble. If there's a Jew bleeding in Paris right now, you're in trouble. Why? Because he is you. The concept is that we're all extensions of a body that interrelate spiritually. We all depend on each other spiritually. And when one of us has a problem, we all held accountable. Not because, yeah, because, because that's part of a body that I'm part of. Oh, we don't like it. It's a difficult message to hear. This is a generation that's into do your own thing and total breakdown of individualism and independence, which is exactly the pre-Messianic mode, that the evil forces in the world desire and crave total, free, unharnessed, unfettered independence, that I do my own thing and I'm not bothered. That's why marriage breaks down in this generation. That's why a sense of responsibility and mutual responsibility and, and, and bonding community doesn't exist. That is the pre-Messianic breakdown. The Gemara says that before Mashiach comes, the only place where you'll find the correct values and the correct truth, the Gemara says, will be wandering like little isolated flocks in the desert. The way the Gemara puts it is, MS the truth will be, the simple meaning is, will have disappeared. But the drosh that the Gemara makes is, Nederis is based on the word, you know, flocks. That the truth will be like little flocks in the desert. You want to find a teacher, you want to find a, a spot to identify and to, to nurture yourself, you're going to find some far distant, isolated vestige of a, of, of a flock of isolated sheep in the desert someplace because there'll be no center and no place. And therefore, and therefore, the Jewish people are judged as a whole. We judged when one person does something, we all were held accountable <coughs> because we are that person. The, what, the, you know, the fact is that often Jews lose the sensitivity of, of the fact that if he does something, I'm held accountable. The non-Jewish world doesn't forget that. By and large, the non-Jewish world doesn't forget that. When one Jew does something wrong and they identify that, there's a sense of, there's a sense of that Jew representing the whole people. It's correct. It's correct. It's correct. You know, first of all, you should know that even on a simple level, there's, you know, there's a concept. We're talking about much deeper things, but, but first of all, simply... On a, on a understandable mechanism. Here we're talking about much deeper things about a concept of Knesset Israel, which means the bonded unity of the Jewish people in the spiritual world of which we are all parts. 
But at a simple level, when a community functions together, the reason that somebody does something that's improper, right, when one man takes something, one of the reasons is because when, the communi- when people are bonded in a unity and there's a consciousness that swirls among that group, when the group falls to a certain level, then somebody at the bottom falls below the red line. Are you with me? That means that if we all are engaged in an enterprise where we have very high standards and we know we shouldn't do a certain thing, but there's a weak link somewhere. There's an individual who's closer to doing that than the rest of us. Somebody who's more tempted, who's weaker, is more likely to break. And it's held up by everybody. But when the community falls to a certain point, then that weakest link falls below the red line. And therefore, he goes and he takes something. And you know why we're accountable? Because we let the body fall. The foot slipped because we let the body go down. Do you understand what happened? When, when, when the Jewish people sinned, Hashem said to Moshe, You go down because your people sinned. You go down because they sinned? What did he have to do with it? He was up on the mountain doing exactly what he had to do, spiritual perfection. Hashem said, I'm sorry, you have to go down. Why? Because when the body goes down, the head goes down. It's one unit. When the body steps down, the head can't stay up. The head has to go down. Moshe is held accountable. For, today we don't have prophets. We don't have prophets because those among us who are more sensitive and greater and are, are capable relatively of achieving greatness relative to the rest of us, but the greatness that they can achieve is in proportion to where the body is. And therefore they're not able to raise their heads into that, into that ethereal atmosphere of prophecy because we all, you read us at this, and you go down and down and down, everybody goes down together. Why is the world judged on according to majority? Why are we judged according to majority? Because... Because you're all one being. It's not that it's not fair that this individual get judged because that individual is getting judged. This individual, if I'm teetering on the edge of a cliff, yes, and I'm losing my balance and I'm swaying, yes, and, and, and there comes a critical moment, what will determine if I fall or if I'm balanced here? It depends. If 51% of my weight is this side of the balance point, the fulcrum, I'll be fine. If 51% of my weight, that's how things balance. Try it, yes. If it's just a little bit over, you'll fall. Ah, it's unfair on the half of me that fell. That's how body works. It's, it's, not, it's not a question of majorities and a rough sort of guide. The body's one thing. When there's a critical mass, then the whole thing is. If a critical mass this side, then that's how it is. The work of a Jew is to learn how to move beyond yourself. Right? Being on your own, is, there's no problem. The Medrash says that Hashem created the world straight and there was no problem. Adam, Elohim, Asas, Adam, Yashor. Man was absolutely clear and fine. But they sought calculations that became crooked. They, plural. Yeah, that means when, when he was alone, he was fine. When he got into a relationship, and there needed to be a, a, a working out of relationship, that means going beyond the self. And the whole of Jewish life is a, is a, is a, is a teaching, you know, what's the first exercise where one is, 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 is meant to learn this movement beyond the self? It's marriage. Marriage is a movement that for the first time in one's life in a completely vulnerable and utterly giving situation. Right? It's a moving out into the being of someone else. And what's fascinating about it is that we see it as a movement out into the community. You know, what's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a custom that we get married in front of a minion. Right? You get married in front of a minion. If you think about it for a moment, it's not appropriate. Marriage is a moving to exclusivity out of community. Again, you want to say the definition of marriage is that you were available for a relationship, right? for, for, for potential relationship and marriage of, with anyone in the community. And marriage is that covenant which is exclusive. You move out of availability and into a totally locked-in exclusive bond. So surely if there's anything that should be done in private, it should be the chuppah. And what do we do? We take that complete statement of privacy, of moving out of a relationship, and we do it in front of a minion. You know what the message is? 
that this moving into relationship, which is the moving beyond myself into another, right, is the beginning of a movement out into community, and we do it in the presence of the community. Because what will happen after this is the next circle of family, and that's in terms of responsibility of the broader community, and building what the Jewish people is. That's a central element in marriage. Somebody who separates himself from the community, even though he's a firm individual, does everything he has to do, has separated himself from the organic body. He's a piece that he's, he's cut himself off. He might, be, he might be healthy in himself, but he's no more umbilical cord to the, to the essence of what his life really is, which is called Knesset Israel, then he's just not alive. Not because he's doing anything wrong in himself. He's doing all the mitzvahs. But all the mitzvahs are drawing energy into your being through the umbilical cord that comes from the, from the mother, which is the Jewish people. Somebody leads the Jewish people astray, right? What's wrong with that, even though he teaches them minor things that are wrong? An insult against the Jewish community is an insult against the life of this individual. All these things for which a person loses one's share in the world to come, they're not, they're not punishments that are arbitrarily given out, this is bad, so you get punished that way. All these things are your connection to the next world. So if you break them, you're just not connected anymore. A person who breaks down belief in Hashem, how does he expect to have an eternal existence? A person who doesn't believe in, 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 the, in the resurrection or, or the next world, how does he expect to have a share in that? These are not punishments, they're just consequences. A person who separates himself from the Jewish people, he doesn't have an existence in the next world because he separated himself from it. What is your existence in the next world? If not simply your intense connection to that mother entity that's called Knesset Israel, that's what it is. So a person who separates himself and isolates himself out of that, he might look fine in his own individual existence, um, an existence but he's just disconnected from the source of And that's why we are judged in majority. That's why when the destroyer, again, Leolenu, is loosed among the Jewish people, it's not a question of attacking this person and not that person. It's a question of attacking this part of the body as opposed to that part of the body. But the whole body's dying. The whole body's wounded. What does it have to do with Rosh Hashanah? What does this have to do with Rosh Hashanah? The secret of Rosh Hashanah is that it's a return to the essence of who you are. That's what beginnings mean. And the essence of who you are is where you fit into this organic entity that is larger than you. Ultimately, fitting into the essence of the Jewish people <coughs> is a fitting into the oneness of Hashem. And that's why the secret of the day is Malchus Shemaim. What are we working on in Rosh Hashanah? Bringing Hashem down as the king of the world. What's the connection between that and moving back to your people? The connection is that just as Hashem is one, and I have to hear this well, just as Hashem is one, and that's the deepest element of, of, our, of what Judaism is all about, like the Rambam says, somebody who breaks down a belief in, in Hashem's existence and his oneness. So just as He is one, we are one. Our tefillin talk about Hashem's oneness, and it says the tefillin that He wears talk about our oneness. Why? Because the meaning of oneness in the world, the meaning of oneness in the world, is that things that are not one melt into becoming one. That's the glory of Hashem. Again, Hashem, Hashem's oneness is, ultimate, is, is, is utterly transcendent and it's one because it is one. Our oneness that has to bring His oneness into, into Gilu, into revelation in the world, is achieved by that which is not one, doing the work of bringing itself back into oneness. There's a giving up of independent ego in order to melt into that which is bigger than me. The paradox is I have to lose who I am to do that 
And the ultimate paradox is that thereby I achieve who I am. It's very hard to find the words to express this, but that was, that's the central message of what marriage is supposed to teach. Marriage is supposed to be an utterly fearless and vulnerable giving of yourself totally and completely away. And when you give yourself away into this thing that is the bond, that is, that is, an, that is an expanded version, that is bigger than two human beings, that you give yourself comple- completely and fearlessly, holding nothing back, give yourself away, paradoxically you discover more about who you really are. And what are you supposed to do with that newfound self-awareness? You put it right back in. This is something that women understand naturally and men basically never understand. <laughs> it's another problem. Even if you tell them. And that movement of completely egoless giving away right, is a melting into genuine oneness. This, the skill of the Jewish people is to melt into a oneness with each other, even though we are flamingly individualistic people as a nation. And even though that's the ideal of Torah, is to become a sharply defined individual. We don't look to become robotic clones and mindless blobs of pro- protoplasm that, that all look the same. That's not Judaism. You see people highly evolved in Torah, great exponents of Torah thought, are flamingly individualistic, rampantly so. Great Torah minds are not mindless clones because, you know, they do the same actions from early in the morning to late at night. They become robotic, you know, identical. No, no, that's not what Torah does to a person, and it's not what it's supposed to do. The skill is to become a flamingly different and, and individualized unit and to be able, using that, to bond into somebody else's unique individuality and make a unit. You know, when we say Shema Yisrael, people think very, very wrongly. People think that Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, right, means, hear, O Israel, hear. What does Shema mean? Let's think a little more deeply here. What does Shema Yisrael mean? People think it means, hear, Israel. Why, why are they telling me to listen? Because I wasn't paying attention, maybe, right? Shema Yisrael. What does it mean? Jewish people, this is important, right? In case you're busy thinking about other things, Shema, listen. The Torah doesn't do that. The Torah's not calling your attention in case you weren't listening. You know what Shema means? Do you know what Shema means? Shema means make oneness. The literal meaning of the word Shema in Tanakh means to bond units into oneness. It says, Vayeshama Shaul Esa'am. Saul gathered the people together. It uses the word Shema. Shema means to bring disparate elements together and make one unit out of them. Why is that the mode of hearing, incidentally? Because you know how you hear? You hear one sound and then the next and then the next and then the next and only after you've heard all of them do you assemble them into what the person is saying. That's not how you work with other modes. When you see, for example, you don't do any assembling. When you see, you see everything all at once. That's why they say seeing is proving, right? Seeing is proof. Re'iyah in Hebrew, seeing, means re'iyah, proof. But hearing happens in the darkness. The way you hear is that you hear one, set, one word, you still don't know what the person's talking about. You hear the next word, you still don't know what he's talking about. You hear the third, and only at the end of the whole sentence, internally do you construct a oneness. Can you feel this? Shema means put together a oneness. Bond yourselves together. When you Jewish people do Shema, then Hashem Echad. When Shema Yisrael, do you hear the beauty of this? When Shema Yisrael means the Jewish people, when you get together in one, and you form the oneness, then Hashem's Malchus is... His, 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 his rule and his kingship, which is what Rosh Hashanah is all about, then it's revealed. I mean, if you go back to the source, it's obvious. When did Shema, where did Shema Yisrael come from? Yaakov Avinu was standing in front here. He was on his deathbed, and his sons were around him. The great 12 sons who are the, yeah, the forerunners of the Jewish people. Incidentally, the 12 of them, plus him, is 13. Right? There are 13 articles of faith. 
which always means none other than the oneness of Hashem's existence, which is the first of them. The word Echad in Hebrew adds up to 13. You add up the letters of Echad, right? 1, 8, and 4, it's 13. The word Ava in Hebrew, which is the melting into, love means the bonding in and the giving away of yourself, in, is Ava adds up to 13. 13 in Torah is always, 13 in Torah is always a oneness. That's what it is. That's why the Jewish people have 13 elements. There's the center, which is the father, and the 12 sons that form the oneness of what we are. That's incidentally why the non-Jews cannot abide the number 13. That's why, that's why for them it's spiritually negative, because they know that's our number. Because their world is a world of disparity and multiplicity and power in multiplicity. And our world is a pulling together multiplicity into a total oneness. Why is Bar Mitzvah 13? Because then the frame comes together in a unique oneness. Women have it internally, they do it a year earlier. It's another story. The center is within. So they stood in front of him, and he wanted to tell them the final Malchus Shemaim, when the Mashiach would come and how Hashem's rule would be apparent on earth altogether. So he tried to say it to them, and his prophecy was taken away. So he, he was very distressed. He thought if Hashem had taken away his ability to, to express that, there must be a deficiency or a defect in one of the sons. But he looked at each, each of them and he perceived that each one was complete and perfect in his, in his being. So then there was only one option left. If each of those men was perfect and yet it had been taken away, there was a deficiency, there's only one option left. Each must be perfect, but their unity is flawed. So he concluded that the brothers were each individually perfect, but they hadn't reached the level of bonding into each other to form the, un- the oneness of the Jewish people. And they read his mind. When they saw that thought cross his face, they said, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Alokeinu, Hashem Echad. Our Father, Yisrael, just like Hashem is one in your mind, He's one, am- he's one among our unity. And then he realized that they were one, and that Hashem had taken it away from him another reason, and he said, Baruch Shem, Kavod Malchus Hashem's Malchus is revealed, and it shall be revealed. And he said that. But what was it dependent on? The fact that the Jewish people that were forming around him would be bonded into a oneness. That's what we are. There's no other way. It's difficult. It's unpleasant. You're working without, with people out there who are not easily amenable to be made one with you. That's the nature of the Jewish people. It's as difficult as, as some marriages. And you're dealing with a generation that's ultimately difficult, that doesn't even know what it's supposed to be, doesn't even know that this is even an issue. There's no way out of this. In the Pasha we just read, it says, Atem nitzavim hayoyim, that you stand this day in front of Hashem. The commentaries say, the Zohar says, that whenever it says hayoyim, it means Rosh Hashanah. When it says this day, there's a unique day. There's one unique day in the year, that's Rosh Hashanah, the day from which all others are born. That's the day. So it says, Atem nitzavim hayoyim, you stand this day. And then the Pasha goes on to say the most amazing thing. You stand this day in front of me, blessings and curses. Right? And there's a connection between the blessings and curses in the Pasha with the terrible curses, blessings and terrible curses that were mentioned in Kisobo in the Pasha before. And there's a new covenant that's being established here. What's the new covenant here? If there was a covenant before. There was a covenant. There was a bris before. That the bris says, do what you have to do. This is the bracha. Do what you're not supposed to do. This is the immense horror and decimation that will... That will, that will burn its way through the Jewish people. It was expressed quite clearly, 98 awesome Holocaust-type curses. Now, today, Rosh Hashanah, there's a new bris. What is the bris of Rosh Hashanah? So the Chumash goes on to say an amazing thing. 
It goes on to say that if an individual will stand there and listen to the words of that of this covenant, and he'll say to himself, amazing thing. And he'll say to himself, I don't want any part of this. What's the language? This person will say, Kibrishirus Shalom Yeli. I'll be okay. I will go in the way of my wanton, independent, yeah, the way I want to go. Listen to this. When this individual hears the words of this curse, listen carefully to this. And he will bless himself as a do in his own heart, saying, Shalom Yeli, I'm fine. I shall go the way of my own willful pathway, and I'll be okay. This is a person who hears the curses. He hears Hashem announced clearly. This is not a person who ignored it. It says, This is a person who heard the curses. And he says, I will be fine. They don't apply to me. Why? Because I'm going to go my independent way and do whatever I want and ignore them. And I'm going to disobey this whole thing and do my own thing and I'll be fine. You'll be fine because you're disobeying? What, what, what does this person mean? The Torah doesn't deal with fools. The Torah doesn't repeat the words of fools. This is an individual who says to himself, I will be fine because I'm going to ignore all this and break it all down and go my own way. I'll be fine that way. I'll be fine because you break it all down after you just heard the curses of the consequence. So the Gona Vilna explains this, the most amazing, amazing explanation. The Gona says the following thing. You know, the curses in the Torah are expressed twice. Right? In the Chukwesai, there's one expression of the curses, and Kisavai is another expression of the curses. The curses in Kisavai are all expressed in the, are all expressed in the singular. You know, you know that the Torah sometimes speaks to the Jewish people in the plural, and it sometimes speaks to us in the singular. The God of Vilna says an amazing principle. He says that whenever the Torah speaks to us in the plural, it's speaking to the individual. And whenever the Torah speaks to us in the singular, it's speaking to the, to the multiplicity, to all of us as individuals. What's the logic? Well, when the Torah speaks to us in the plural, it means you and you and you and you and you and you. It's speaking to individuals. But when the Torah speaks to us in the singular, it means you, the organic body that is the Jewish people. So it uses one word. Just like when we camp by Sinai and we were ready to receive the Torah, the Torah switches into the singular, right? It says, by Yichan Shom, the Jewish people camp there, like one person with one heart, because that's how the Torah comes down. That's how there's an intimate relationship with Hashem. When you here on earth form the oneness that He is in His world, so then you like Him. There's no Chochmah in being one isolated in yourself. There's no work of moving back towards His oneness. The work is when you bond together with other people, right? sometimes who don't want it. The curses that were given in the last parasha, in Kisaboy, speak to the Jewish people, all those curses in the singular. What does it mean? These curses will befall you as a nation. The Torah is not speaking to individuals. If you do this wrong and if you do this wrong, you'll be punished and you'll be punished. It's not talking like that. The Torah phrases it as a unit. You as a nation, when you fulfill what you have to do, and, you'll do, and if you don't fulfill it as a nation, this is your punishment. So this individual comes along and he says, Oh, Hashem speaking to us in the singular. That means he's speaking to the Jewish people as a group, as a unit. Fine, I'll take myself out of that and I'll be fine. After all, the, you understand the logic? The curses were only spoken to the Jewish people as a bonded unit. Hashem was only saying, I'm going to curse you if you don't fulfill your function as an organic entity. But Bishiru's Libi Eilech, that's great. But I'm, I'm not part of that. I'm part, I'm, I'm, I'm move out on my own. Shalom Yiri, I'll be fine. He wasn't speaking to me. Comes Nitzavim to say, you can't do that. The apostle goes on to say that the, all the curses that were mentioned before will be poured out upon you, individual. You know why? Because you're not an individual. 
You think you're going to go your own independent way and isolate yourself from those people? You have to understand that as soon as you do that, you die. There's a separate covenant that's established on Rosh Hashanah, a separate priest that takes place on Atem Nitzavim Hayyom Rosh Hashanah, that comes along to tell you that if you try and step out of line with those people, that their fate will not be your fate. That's impossible. You're trying to cut yourself off from a body where your lifeblood is flowing into you. You die that way. You know, the, the, uh, the, um, when Elisha, right, let's, let's just try and apply this to women. When Elisha was walking past, he used to go past the house of the Shunamis. There was a very great woman in those days, right, a very, very great spiritual woman. She perceived his, his greatness. She, the woman says how she knew he was a very great man. And she said to her husband, a childless woman, her husband was old. She said to her husband, let us make him a small room, an attic, and we'll, 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 this holy man, when he passes by, we invite him, he stays with us, right? She won't bring him into her home. So Elisha, when he used to pass by there, he used to come and stay with her, he used to stay in the home, in the house, and that's what happened. The Gemara says, Vayihi hayom, and it was on that day that he was in the house, and he said to his servant, to his shamas, to Gehazi, who later turned out to be a very negative, in fact, he turned out to be one of those who lost his share in the world to come. He said to Gehazi, call her in and let's see if there's something we can do for her. So the Shunamis appeared before him, and Elisha said to Gehazi, ask her if there's anything I can do for her. Right? Can I speak to the king for you? Right? Can I speak to the minister of defense? Can I speak to... Right? He offered her. He said, you've done such incredible hospitality for us. You, you've, you've shown us this awesome kindness of, of making this genuine hospitality, not only taking us into your home, but actually making part of your home, especially for us. What can I do for you? Can I speak to the king for you? What can I do? Ostensibly, he's the prophet, leader of the Jewish people. He's a very powerful man. Tremendous influence. So is there anything you need? Need me to speak to the king? I'll put in a word for you. She answers an amazing answer. She says, Beseich ami I sit among my people. I dwell among my people. He said, you understand the conversation? He said to her, what do you need? She's a childless woman. What can I do for you? She's talking to the prophet. If there's anybody who can do things, it's he. In fact, he later gave her a bracha and she had a child. And who was the child? Chabakuk, the prophet. The prophet. That's who it turned out to be. In fact, his name is Chabakuk because he means, Chabakuk means to be embraced because he was embraced twice. Once when he was born, special embrace because he was an unexpected child with special divine blessing. And secondly, because he was slightly older as a child, he died. And she ran to fetch Elisha who came and revived the child and he was embraced again in life. And he later grew up to become the, one of the great pro prophets of the Jewish people. That's what his bracha was capable of doing. And she's facing this man and she knows that. And here comes the moment. She says to her, what can I do for you? And she says, ami I, sit, I dwell among my people. What kind of answer is that? Yeah, I didn't ask for your address. I asked, what can I do for you? I said, I dwell among my people. And then the, the Nach goes on to say that Gehazi spoke up and said, Aval ben Einla, she has no son, Vebala Zaken, her husband's old. And then Elisha, in response to that, he gave her a bracha. In fact, a year later she had a child. So the commentaries say, and Rukhan Shmulev speaks about it, an amazing and sobering thought. It was Rosh Hashanah that day. It says, Vayihi 
the same word that indicates to us that it was Rosh Hashanah. And he was in her house on Rosh Hashanah. And he called her in front of him and said, is there anything you can do? And she knew the secret. Rosh Hashanah is not a day when you want to single yourself out. If there's one day you want to melt into your people and hide among them, it's when you're being judged. You think that the day of Rosh Hashanah is a day to stand forward and say, Hashem, here, here I am. I need life, I need this, I need that. And you start praying for it and you deal with it. It's not a day for that. It's not a day for that. Her deepest need to express herself as the mother of, of a child in the Jewish people, she swallowed that. She said, I, mean, I, I, I sit among my people, I'm one of them. Then Gaihazi spoke up and said, but she's a private citizen, she has needs. Gave her bracha. Rosh Hashanah is not a time when you ask for things for yourself. You know, if you go through the davening on Rosh Hashanah, there's not one single personal request, there's not a request for anything. The only thing we ask for on Rosh Hashanah is Hashem's kingship, that He should be revealed. You're being judged. You're being judged. Your life is in the balance. Not a word. Not a word. The whole tefillah. You know that you, you look through the whole davening of Rosh Hashanah. You look through Amida, and look through Amida of Musaf. There's not a single mention of you know survival. That was added later, not by Sheikh and it's not essential. If you leave it out, you don't have to go back. It was added by later generations. Avinu Malkanu, which has request, was added later. Then Sheikh Nesis Sagdola, who coined the Nusach of Atfilis, the whole, the whole Amida that they phrased is the three brochas of praise of Hashem, brocha for the day. In Musaf, it's, it's Malchias, Zichonis, and Shefris, which is all the manifestations of Hashem's rule, and the three brochas of Hidosh signing off. Your life's hanging in the balance. If there's one, the court is sitting. At this moment, they decide if you're going to live, die, die in agony, in pain, survive your family, money, health. This is the moment. If there's one moment that you lie down on the floor and cry, beg, this, surely this is the moment? Jewish people doesn't do that. At the moment when your life hangs, you do it now in Elul. That's what you do in Elul. And you pour your heart out for 10 days till Yom Kippur and all Yom Kippur doing that, that's fine. But on the day of Rosh Hashanah, when the judgment actually takes place, not a word. I want to melt into them. You know why? Because the greatest hope you have for life is to the extent that you're part of them. If you, if you, part, if you, if you attach yourself to that umbilical cord, that's guaranteed life. You ex- you're alive as a Jew to the extent that you nourish and suckle life from Knesset Israel. On the contrary, the, the wisest thing you can do selfishly for your life is not to stand out. That shouldn't be your motivation. You should do it because you're focusing on Malchus Shemayim. But you can't focus on that. Let's say you're too selfish, you haven't got to that level, and you're really anxious about your life, then you desperately need not to mention yourself. Mention yourself. <coughs> you know, Hashem, here I am. Are you confident enough that they turn the searchlight on you and you'll, it'll be okay with you? This week we had the privilege of Moshe Shapiro being here. He spoke in the Space Medrash. And he spoke about the tsunamis and about melting into your people and there's not a day to single yourself out and isolate yourself. I was present after this year when a young man walked up to him and he said to him, are you allowed to? Are you allowed to? After the Amid, that you say your own pasuk for your name and you want to pour out your heart and ask for your own things, are you allowed to? He said, Ani Choshev Kadai. I don't think it's worth it. Yeah. You are not isolated. That means no matter where you are, 
But there's no, there's a special bris binding you into this bris that is our bris. There's no, there's just no way to detach yourself from it. Detaching yourself from it, singling yourself out, that itself is, is ultimate danger. That's what Rosh Hashanah is. It's a return to the oneness that we manifest, bonding into that. And that itself is a, the substrate and the, the structure that brings Hashem's oneness into Gil, into Revelation. Are the Jews out there in the desert? He's isolated out there and detached from his people. But at the end, there's that umbilical cord that will snake out somehow and pick him up. That's more easily, more difficult. There's a certain rabbi who now happens to live here in London. But his job in South Africa was he was the community, he was the country rabbi, that's what they called him. His job was to go out to the country communities, you know, very far, South Africa is a big country. His job was to go out to the far-flung small communities in South Africa and Southwest Africa and to make sure that, you know, isolated small groups, sometimes a, a town had less than a million or sometimes even one or two individual Jews, that their needs were serviced, sometimes their communities that become defunct, they attack the Sifre Torah and bring them to Israel. Unfortunately, many small communities like that a generation ago were thriving, and today they, they become desolate, the people moved into the towns or left the country. And that was his, that was his function. Today he lives here. He showed me once a photograph that I'll never forget. See that thing in front of my eyes. He showed me a photograph of a gravestone. He was traveling in one of the far-flung communities, out far, far, out in, in South, southwest Africa, became later Namibia and the Namib Desert. And he came to a town where a Jew had lived. But this man was completely assimilated. Gone out to this place, very few people around, certainly no Jews there, no community, hundreds and hundreds of miles from any vestige of a Jewish community. They'd married a non-Jewish woman. And, and, and uh, there'd been nothing Jewish about nothing recognizably Jewish about him at all. And he lived out his life there and he died. And the people there buried him. But they knew he was Jewish. And they wanted to put something on his gravestone. They wanted to put something on his gravestone that signified the fact that, 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 that it was relevant. And you, we can only reconstruct what must have happened. No one knows the story. All, all, all we have is, the, is, is, is a gravestone. We have to reconstruct. But they must have searched through his house or his possessions. They must have, must have done something to find something they could put on, and they found something. They found something. And today that gravestone has an inscription in Hebrew, upside down and backwards. They didn't know what they were writing. <coughs> and across the top of the gravestone, upside down, it says, Kosher Le Pesach. <laughs> he must have had in his house a box of matzahs, something, I don't know what. That's carved in stone. You know, either in this life or the next, but that's where it is, of course. Pesach is the formation of the Jewish people. It's the nucleus, just like Rosh Hashanah for the individual, is the Rosh Hashanah for the Jewish, the Jewish people. That's the nucleus of the birth of the Jewish people. And the message is that they are one. The two are one. And therefore, that kosher of Pesach, which is the essence of the purity of the Jewish people, I think our work is to make sure that we kosher the Rosh Hashanah. <coughs>